A DCA cargo plane is on its climb out from Sacramento when something unexpected happens. What caused this plane to crash into a salvage yard? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Hi. Cool. <laughs> Good talk. <laughs> uh, it's been a very stressful week, friendos. We're ready to just not think about stuff. So Yeah. So here's a plane crash. So here's a plane crash. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Emory Worldwide Flight 17. Thank you to Rich, our patron, for recommending this accident. Thanks, Rich, for recommending things. And being a patron. And commenting every week. And being cool. <laughs> he is cool. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this occurred on February 16th of the year 2000. This happened on a flight from Sacramento to Dayton, Ohio. But not Sacramento International. Right. This is from Sacramento Mather, 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 Mather Airport. <laughs> We'll just call it Sacramento from here. It's not the primary airport in Sacramento. It's another one. It used to be an Air Force base. Yes. It's just a big airport now. Most airports are. Yes. This was a DC-8-71FF4 freighter. So we are talking about a cargo airplane. A cargo flight. The tail number was November 8079er Uniform. And it was previously operated by two other operators, United and Linus Arias Paraguayas. Paraguayan airline? Yes. That means Paraguayan Airlines. Yes. Yeah, yeah, got it. The captain for our flight was to be Kevin Stables. He was 43 years old. He had 13,329 hours total, of which 2,128 hours were on the DC-8. The first officer was to be George Land. He was 35 years old. He had 4,511 hours total, of which 2,080 hours were on the DC-8. And the flight engineer was to be Russell Hicks. He was 38 years old. He had 9,775 hours total, of which 675 hours were on the DC-8. So he was newer to the DC-8 than the other two. Captain was pretty experienced, though, at over 13,000 hours. The plane began the day in Dayton, flying over to Reno with the captain riding in the jump seat. The captain that we will have on our accident flight. He rode the, flight, the plane early in the day from Dayton to Reno. The captain then flew as the captain from Reno to Sacramento. The flight had departed Reno at 5.55 p.m. Pacific time. It had arrived at Sacramento at 6.15 p.m. and reached the cargo ramp at 6.32 p.m., at which point the cargo handling personnel then unloaded all of the cargo from the main deck and the belly cargo areas and then loaded the cargo for the next flight, which was to go back to Dayton. They finished around 7.30 p.m. While this was being done, the flight engineer performed a pre-flight inspection of the external of the aircraft. Also during that time... The maintenance personnel performed some minor routine maintenance and service items such as oil, brakes, tire, and fuel service. Things you'd do on your car. Really basic stuff. Once the cargo loading was completed, the load supervisor went to the cockpit and gave the captain the load planning information to inspect and use to calculate the weight and balance for the aircraft. The load supervisor then received a signed copy of the load plan and the weight and balance form from the crew just before the doors were closed for their departure. At 7.27 p.m. and 25 seconds, the first officer, acting as the pilot flying, performed the takeoff briefing, stating in part, We're cleared up to 3,000 standard Emory procedures. If there's a problem, we'll come back here and land on runway 22 left. The captain responded, Sounds good. 7.32 p.m. and 32 seconds, the flight engineer confirmed that the cargo doors were shut, and four seconds later, the crew began their pre-start checklist. At 7.39 p.m. and 19 seconds, so a few minutes later, the flight engineer informed the ground crew that they had four good running engines after starting, and that they could pull the auxiliary power and air, things that are hooked up to maintain, you know, airflow in the cabin, and power. At 7.40 p.m., the crew began their after-start slash before-taxi checklist, and then advised the local airport traffic that they were taxiing from the cargo ramp to runway 22 left for takeoff. Now, 
when I say they were ta- they advised the local airport traffic, that's because this was an untowered airport. Ah. So they actually just have a Unicom frequency where they just tell Everyone, everybody hey. that's listening. Yo, yo, we about to move, yo. We gonna move. <laughs> As they taxi, the captain called for flaps 15 degrees and a flight controls check. They performed an aileron check, then a rudder check, then an elevator check. At the end of the check, the first officer responded, EPI checks, which is the elevator position indicator. So in other words, it just tells them that the elevator was moving as expected. At 7.42 p.m. and 31 seconds, the crew began the taxi checklist. At 7.42 p.m. and 43 seconds, the flight engineer stated, controls EPI, and the first officer stated, checked, as part of their checklist. At 7.46 p.m. and 58 seconds, the first officer contacted the Sacramento Terminal Radar Approach Control advising them that Emery-17 was number one for takeoff and requesting the flight's IFR release to Dayton. So at this point, they contacted what would normally be Sacramento International's approach control. They handle that whole area around Sacramento, so they contacted them for that release to take off. Basically, normally you'd contact uh, an IFR release controller, but they didn't have one, so they contacted them instead just to make sure that they could sequence into the airways without getting in anybody's way. At 7.47 p.m. and 14 seconds, that controller reported, quote, Emory 17, Sacramento, you're released for departure. Report airborne. First officer responded, we'll call you in the air. At 7.47 and 28 seconds to 7.48 and 10 seconds, the crew performed their before takeoff checklist, during which they informed the local airport traffic that they would be taking off on runway 22 left with a left downwind departure. So they would make an immediate left turn to go into the left downwind heading out. At 7.48 p.m. and 15 seconds, the engines were increased to takeoff power, and the plane began rolling down 22 left for takeoff. At 7.48 and 44 seconds, the captain stated, airspeed alive. The first officer responded, alive here. At 7.48 p.m. and 50 seconds, the captain reported, 80 knots. Elevator checks. So the first officer performed a brief check of the elevators, pushing forward and pulling back. At 7.49 p.m. and 2 seconds, the captain stated, V1. And 4 seconds later, he stated, rotate. The airplane was pitching up and began lifting from the runway. The airplane suddenly started pitching up heavily, unprompted. At 7.49 p.m. and 8 seconds, the stabilizer trim in motion alert sounded. So when this is on a lot of airplanes, when you pitch trim the airplane, there typically is a sound or some kind of very audible noise to basically tell you that that trim is in motion. So you you don't try to fight the trim. It's to tell you that Somebody is trimming the airplane, or it's trimming itself. So describe what trimming is to me. So trimming is quite literally calibrating the airplane to fly stabilized in a, in a specific attitude. So you have controls to trim the pitch and typically the rudder on an airplane to fly in a specific attitude. So if they wanted to climb at a certain climb rate, then they can pitch trim the elevator to that attitude and then let go of the controls and in theory the airplane should hold that attitude one second later the captain stated watch the tail as the airplane began pitching up heavily and they were still near the runway the first the first officer was pushing down on the control column yet the airplane was climbing out at 11.7 degrees nose up and now it was in a left turn that was also unprompted a few seconds later the captain stated v2 then positive rate The airplane was now pitching toward 20 degrees nose up, which is much higher than normal for an initial climb out. What is normal? Normal is about 10 degrees. Thank you. Sometimes 15. Depends on the airplane. Just a few seconds later, the first officer stated, I got it. Then the captain asked, you got it? The first officer responded, yep. Within 10 seconds of liftoff, the airplane had entered a left bank of 35 degrees. At 7.49 p.m. and 19 seconds, the first officer stated, We're going back. CG is way out of limits. So at this point, that call indicates that he finds that the center of gravity of the airplane is way out of its limits. Six seconds later, the flight engineer asked, do you want to pull the power back? Two seconds later, the thrust was decreased and the stick shaker activated. Uh Uh-oh. The airplane... Yep. The airplane began pitching up heavily. The first officer stated, oh, expletive. (laughs) We'll leave that to your imagination. (laughs) The captain stated, push forward. At 7.49 and 36 seconds, the captain advised the Tracon controller 
so the the air traffic controller that handled their release, that they had an emergency. During this time, the airplane's altitude had reached 1,037 feet, then began to decrease, and then the left bank went from 30 degrees to 17 degrees, back to 25 degrees, then decreased to 12 degrees. What the heck is happening? <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. At 7.49 p.m. and 40 seconds, the first officer stated, You steer, I'm pushing. Tracon then asked them to repeat their radio call. The captain then repeated the emergency call. At 7.49 p.m. and 44 seconds, the first officer stated, We're sinking. We're going down, guys. Two seconds later, the engine thrust began to increase, followed immediately by the whoop, whoop, pull up from the GPWS, letting them know that they are approaching the ground very quickly. The first officer then called for power. The airplane was descending through 679 feet at the time. The airplane continued descending to 601 foot before climbing again. As the plane climbed through 625 feet, the GPWS stopped sounding and the first officer said, All right, all right, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Breathe? Yeah. Breathe. Yeah, exactly. At 7.49 p.m. and 54 seconds, the airplane climbed through 673 feet and the first officer stated, Push! And then the flight engineer stated, Okay, so we're going back up? (laughs) the pitch and the left bank both increased during this time the left bank reaching nearly 45 degrees before it began to decrease around 749 and 56 seconds one second later the flight engineer said there you go the captain stated roll out thanks for his input yeah (laughs) i was like what's the captain doing during all this you'll see the, the so the captain's actually generally pushing on the control column too but his input in words you'll see Completely unhelpful. Through the whole thing, you'll see. At 7.50 and 4 seconds, the airplane was in a 33-degree left bank and climbing through 901 feet, at which point the captain advised the air traffic controller that Emery-17 has an emergency CG problem. So they're still assuming this is a center of gravity problem because the airplane's pitching wildly and they're a cargo airplane. I mean, it's not a bad assumption. Yeah. The plane continued to climb and the left bank decreased for another 6 to 7 seconds, the airplane rolled out of its bank at a heading of 022 at 947 feet. At 7.50 p.m. and 11 seconds, the flight crew was still fighting heavily with the controls, even as the plane briefly stabilized. The flight engineer asked, Anything I can do, guys? The captain stated, Roll out to the right, simultaneously. A few seconds later, the first officer stated, Okay, push. The next four seconds were roughly stabilized, approximately parallel to the runway, at an altitude of 1,000 feet. Two seconds later, someone stated, push forward. Then the first officer stated, oh. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. That's literally what it said. Over the next 10 seconds, the airplane began banking right, and it climbed to 1,087 feet. Then it began to descend again. At 7.50 and 26 seconds, the pitch and bank were decreasing, and the flight engineer asked, You got the trim maxed? So, asking if their elevator trim was literally maxed out. At 7.50 and 28 seconds, so two seconds later, the first officer stated, Power! And the flight engineer asked, More? The first officer responded, Yeah. At that time, the GPWS began sounding again, briefly. A moment later, the first officer stated, We're going to have to land fast. The airplane then transitioned from a right bank to a left bank. At 7.50 p.m. and 37 seconds, the first officer stated, What I'm trying to do is make the airplane's pitch match the elevator. That's why I'm putting it in a bank. The airplane continued to turn left to a 30-degree bank and began turning back toward the airport so they could line up to land, hopefully. At 7.50 p.m. and 45 seconds, the captain replied, All right, left turn. Again. Already in a left turn. Thanks for your input. Thank you so much. The first officer added, so we're going to have to land it in a turn. The captain stated, bring it around. Again. Thanks for the input. Thank you so much. A second later, the stick shaker activated again, and the captain repeated again, bring it around. The flight crew then fought even harder with the controls, and the airplane began descending heavily as it descended through 774 feet. Now, mind you, the airport's at about 400 feet. Oh. The first officer then asked the captain, you got the airport? The captain again stated, bring it around. Uh, are you okay? Seriously. <laughs> are this you having a stroke? This guy's stuck in repeat. Yeah. What do, what do you mean by bring it around? We're in a turn already. Yeah. Can Tell you me see the airport? Yeah. The first officer then requested more power, 
and the GPWS again began sounding briefly. A few seconds later, the airplane was still descending heavily and continuing its left bank, and three seconds later, the first officer stated, Power! Oh! Expletive. You can run that through your imagination. One second later, the airplane impacted a building, followed by a large lot of salvage cars. The airplane was in a left-wing low, nose-up attitude when it impacted. It impacted one mile east of the runway. We'll go through this for a second. <laughs> there is a map on the website for reference. Though I think you did a pretty good job. I tried. So they, yeah, they took off, but you can see they didn't even make it the full length of the runway before their left turn started, which they normally would fly out past the end of the runway before they'd start into a left turn. Normally. So they went into this heavy left turn. They were getting GPWS warnings. They were descending, ascending. Lots of weird bank turns as they were flying roughly parallel to the runway. And then he intentionally tried to get it into a left bank to try to bring it back around for the runway. Because he was going to try to land it short in a turn. Because that's pretty much the option he had. But ended up impacting a lot full of cars. Awesome. Sounds like they either had a weight and balance problem or an elevator problem. So for the wreckage, (laughs) all three crew members perished in the accident. The airplane was completely destroyed in the accident and the post-crash fire, with pieces strewn throughout the entire lot full of cars. Oh, trying to get wreckage out of a salvage yard? is an absolute pain. Oh, that would suck. It took a lot of volunteers a lot of time to find all the parts of this airplane. Yeah. They had to do it in a grid pattern, and the wreckage was strewn 450 feet wide by a quarter of a mile long. A corner of the building and many of the cars in the salvage yard were damaged, but nobody on the ground was hurt. Good for them. This was at night, so... No, it's probably nobody there. Could you imagine, though, you're, like, working late, chilling, airplane comes crashing into your yeah. salvage yard, you're like, God, <sighs> Yes. am I okay? Yeah. <laughs> Did I just see that? So, mind you, this airplane has four engines, because it's a DC-8. DC-8 is a biggish airplane, it's not huge, but it has four engines, and they just load it up with enough fuel to fly cross-country. So, when the airplane impacted, Ow. it was a massive fire. Big big boom. And so the airplane basically completely disintegrated. Well, and they were also going pretty fast when they hit, too. So Relatively, yes. They still actually, I think, had their landing gear down and their flaps out. They didn't even have time to react to that. React <laughs> to retract? Yes. <laughs> that was so bad. Oh, God. You love me anyway. So meanwhile, this entire time, there was another Emory pilot who was actually just chilling in a hotel in Salt Lake City. So in this airline, once you fly with a crew, you're stuck with that crew for a month. Your schedules line up for a month, so you get to know them really well. You're eating meals with them, you're chilling in the hotel together, live standy. So he knows these pilots. So everybody knows everybody in this airline. Yep. It's not a very big airline. They're kind of a a secondary subcargo carrier below the normal big ones. So this, I should mention his name. This is John Albright. So he's on the phone with his wife, actually, and he just has CNN blaring in the background. And then he hears the word Emery, and he's like, what? We just lost an airplane. And his wife's like, what? And he's like, turn on the news. So he'll become important later. Okay. Just wanted to briefly bring him up. This was not in the report for the record. This was from the Air Disasters episode. But he is important. Yes. Vaguely. This investigation was performed by... The NTSB. Congratulations who flew out to Mather to begin going through the wreckage. They had to very carefully go through all the wreckage we just mentioned. In this search, they did find the black boxes, and they sent them on the same plane they flew in back to D.C. for analysis. In the meantime, though, they did have access to the ATC recordings, or rather, Tracon recordings, and investigators heard the pilots report an issue with CG. So they knew something was wrong with the load. Was the plane balanced? At this point, they had actually flown all the way back to D.C., but then one investigator flew back to Mather to go interview the loading crew, because this was not loaded by Emory, as it were. There was a third-party loading company. Basically, this airport isn't a major, major airport, 
So there's one cargo ramp, and this contracting company handles the cargo movements for any airplanes that arrive at the cargo ramp, which could be them, it could be any airline, basically. And at first, this company, when being interviewed, were a little like standoffish and apprehensive, but then the investigator's like, nah, I did this. I was you. I did this job. I worked as a cargo loader. And they're like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you don't understand what I have to do every day. And he's like, actually, I do. (laughs) Started started speaking their lingo and then, you know, then they got along great. Well, not great, but they cooperated. Yeah. So when interviewed, they informed the investigator that most of the load was clothing. Four pallets and 14 containers of cargo in the main cargo compartment positions. There were three cases of mail and other long freight that went into the belly cargo compartments. In total, 59,290 pounds in the main cargo area and 2,690 pounds in the belly. This load was lighter than normal, according to the cargo planner, who said normal loads for Emery were around 75,000 pounds. His goal was to have a center of gravity, or CG, of about 23%, which when I say that, I mean, if you take the length of the plane, you... He's wanting the CG to be 23% of the way back from the nose, if that makes sense. We've discussed it before. But the CG actually ended up just a smidge aft of that 23% as two of the Ford cargo containers were particularly light. But it was well within the CG limit of 33.6%. There had been reports and concerns by Emory pilots of bad straps and things like that, but the cargo loading company assured the investigators that they would not have loaded it if they thought it was unsafe. Mm -hmm. So, along those lines, did the load shift at all during takeoff? We've covered an accident where that did happen. National airbase. That took off from Afghanistan. Yep. But this flight didn't have any of the same evidence. The metal clamps, or bear claws, that would show damage if the load had shifted did not have any such damage. They also compared the FDR to an FDR from a flight three years earlier that had a load shift, and they did not match. I'm not mentioning which flight this is, because it is on our schedule. So investigators went to the CVR. In D.C., they brought in Captain John Albright to identify the voices of the crew members that he knew. He was also informed and warned that there is a distinct statistical possibility that he would quit flying within two years of listening to his peers die on a CVR. Makes sense. For the record, he's still flying. Well, I mean, it was only a percentage. I mean... Yes. He says it. Um, he was interviewed for the Air Disasters episode, and he said that it still sticks with him. He can still hear it playing on a loop in his head. Makes Again, that also makes sense. I mean, especially if you knew the people on the plane. It's terrible. I would never want to ever be in such a position. The CVR and FDR, cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, both showed that the flight began its takeoff pretty normally through the 80-knot elevator check. Then, after V1 and before rotate, the plane began to rotate on its own without any column input. In fact, the first officer actually pushed down to counter the uncommanded pitch-up. He then trimmed nose down four seconds after rotation speed and trimmed down fully three seconds after liftoff. The pilots worked together to try to control the plane, with the first officer pushing down on the column and the captain trying to bank to control the pitch. The flight engineer was adjusting throttles at the first officer's request. They were, in a way, porpoising, or oscillating between climbing and descending as they struggled to figure out what worked to control the plane. The crew then said that they were trying to match what the elevators were showing. Was something wrong with the elevators? Before investigators could go through the wreckage, though, they looked at the FDR and found something weird. It turns out that the FDR's recording of the elevator values were off by 11 degrees. Yeah. I make that sound like a really easy thing to figure out, like, oh, it's just off by 11 degrees, just subtract 11 degrees, whatever. No, it's not that easy, because how do you figure that out? They eventually resolved it when they looked at the very beginning of the flight, where the gust lock is on. That's a mechanism that locks the elevators so that they aren't damaged by large gusts of wind or by jet blasts, as has happened in the past, apparently. Yes, it has plenty of times, actually. When the gust lock was on, the elevator showed 11 degrees trailing edge down. So they had to adjust the records to show that, in fact, the elevator never actually went below zero degrees the entire flight. The right one, specifically. Now they had a real symptom to investigate. The elevators in the DCA are not hydraulically actuated. 
It's all done with physical systems like cables and pulleys and pushrods and so on. So investigators spent a large chunk of time examining the control system from column to tail to find any damage not caused by the impact. What was interesting, though, wasn't the damage that they found, but rather that they didn't find. The elevators are controlled by a pushrod system controlling control tabs on the inboard sides of the elevators that then use airflow to move the whole elevator. Basically, the control tab is to be is moved into resistance, and the elevator follows to minimize that resistance in the opposite direction. It's kind of confusing. The pushrod for the left elevator had damage to it from the crank fitting it's connected to on the control tab. But in fact, the right pushrod barely had any damage at all near the crank fitting, and had an interference rubbing pattern on it instead, as though it wasn't connected to the crank fitting at all. Would those parts not being connected have led to these problems? The two parts are connected using a nut and bolt system. So there's the 11 degree correction that had to be made between the green and the black. That's where the control system is. You've seen these before. So there's the inboard ones. Those are the control tabs. And then there's the rest of the elevator. Mm-hmm. The two parts are connected using a nut and bolt system, specifically a castellated nut and a cotter pin assembly which we have pictures on our website because it's not your normal nut and bolt assembly. This assembly, though, was entirely missing from the wreckage and was never recovered. Investigators took another Emery DC-8 to be their test subject. During the test, after taking some baseline control measurements as good experiment go, investigators removed the cotter pin and removed the castellated nut and bolt system, disconnecting the pushrod from the crank fitting. With nothing to keep it up, the control tab fell down 29 degrees where it contacted the geared tab linkage fairing. Basically, it reached the extent of its limits. And the pushrod was completely free from the system. So it went down as far as it could go. In fact, it actually shifted inboard just a smidge. Because of this, when investigators lifted the control tab, just with their arms, the crank fitting ran into the pushrod at 15.9 degrees trailing edge down, meaning the elevator would rise up, making the nose pitch up, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. it can't go any further because it's running into that push rod, Mm -hmm. which makes the entire plane pitch up. Right. Investigators moved the assembly into a bunch of different positions to simulate the possibilities with the vibration of takeoff, and most resulted in a 25-degree difference between the left and right control tabs, with the right one being down. But one position produced an even more dangerous result. If the control tab were to be pushed by aerodynamic forces, the crank fitting would actually run into the push rod such that it went through the fitting where it would normally connect, but then it would go further so that the push rod would be stuck in the crank fitting. And this resulted in the right control tab always being lower than the left one, pushing the plane nose up, and it could only move 3 to 4 degrees. This scenario was most consistent with the contact damage on the crank fitting. So... It'd just be jammed in there, and it could barely move, and there's damage on the front right there. So this right here is the back side right here, Hmm. where it met the wider diameter, if that makes sense. Flight data recorder data from the previous takeoff showed nothing irregular, so investigators established that this disconnect happened sometime between that takeoff and this one. They did find that a 1 to 2 degree change between the control column and actual elevator started during a bump, 8 minutes and change before the previous flight's landing. Then, during the accident takeoff, the elevator was doing weird things after the gust lock was unlocked, meaning it was kind of free-floating. Specifically, during the elevator check on the last flight when all was well, the elevator moved its full motion between 5.4 degrees trailing edge up to 7.8 degrees trailing edge down. On the accident flight, it only moved between 5.5 degrees edge up and 2.2 degrees edge up. So, like, 3 degrees of motion. They found later in the short flight that the nose-down column inputs in the cockpit caused a full trailing edge up of the left control tab and an extreme trailing edge down of the right control tab. And these combined drove both elevators up, resulting in a strong nose-up elevator effect throughout the flight, despite anything the crew did. How did this happen? This is where Miranda gets mad. 
Investigators knew that a failure of a castellated nut and or cotter pin was highly unlikely, so they took a look at the maintenance records. Oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. The plane had a D-check, a full overhaul that ended in November of 1999, three months before the accident. During this overhaul, the right elevator was replaced by a third party, not Emory Mechanics, but rather Tennessee Technical Services in Smyrna, Tennessee. Then it spent a weekend in Dayton at Emory's maintenance facility about a week later, where they swapped the elevator dampers. So something went wrong at one of these facilities. Yeah. At TTS, during the D-check, they confirmed that the initial installation was performed correctly and the pushrod was correctly attached. Then, during the post-installation testing and rigging, the nut-bolt assembly could have been removed to adjust the pushrod length, but an experienced mechanic might not have removed from the aft end, which is where this was disconnected, since it actually could be done from the forward end if you had the right know-how. Emery insists that it definitely happened at TTS. Because, of course, they would. Yeah, I mean, the contractor. You know, they yeah. don't, they don't want to... Take the blame. Take blame, yeah. But there was a chance that they did it when swapping the elevator dampers. Investigators interviewed the mechanic who performed the work and was told that he had never done it before. There wasn't any staff to supervise him or guide him, but he allegedly did it per the manual, which would not involve the nut-bolt assembly at all. But it was a difficult replacement. It could have been made easier if you disconnect the push rod and allow the control tab free range of motion to reach the dampers that it turns out TTS installed incorrectly. So, ah! Which is why they had to change the dampers. So this falls on both. So TTS already shows that they didn't do the best of jobs. But it also could have been done by Emery. Because let's have someone who's never done this before and have no one who actually knows how to do it show him how to do it where he's looking at a manual trying to figure out how to do it. Seriously, people? Have we not learned anything? <laughs> Apparently not. Come on. Come on. Don't, first of all, if you have experienced mechanics that have done this before, why are you having someone who's never done this before do it? Because they were short-staffed. Well, guess what? <laughs> That caused a problem, didn't it? <laughs> yep. Investigators determined that whoever did it most likely forgot to reattach the cotter pin into the nut bolt assembly, which then slowly unscrewed itself over the three months leading up to the accident. They determined this particularly because the maintenance manual did not specify that a cotter pin was required, though this had been assumed to be obvious and had never been a problem before. The five primary U.S. operators who operate in multiple DC-8s all adopted a revision to their maintenance manuals because of this. Makes sense. Yeah. Because it's, it's like the, the coffee, caution, coffee's hot thing, you know? You need to put it in there anyway because obviously, especially if you have someone who has never done this kind of service before, if they look at the manual and they see that potentially there's no pin then they're going to forget to put the pin back in. Yep, there was no step saying reinstall cotter pin. Yeah. So. Now, you also might have another question that I also had. Wouldn't you have been able to see this during the pre-flight checks? I don't know. Would you? I would think it would be inside, right? Well, the control tab would have been at different angles. I don't know. I yes, mean, is it is it too but, high up to see from the ground, though? Like, yes, but no. Let me get into it a little bit. Emory required the flight engineer to evaluate the elevator control surfaces twice during pre-flight checks, once with a gust lock engaged and once without it. Mm -hmm. It is likely there was an asymmetry during the inspection, but it's impossible to say for sure. The manual just said to check for alignment and condition, and that with gust lock off, elevator should be up, control tabs up, and geared tabs down. Boeing emphasized after the accident that you should specifically be looking for an asymmetry. Their instructions for the pre-flight check did not say to look to see if they're oh, in the same. like if the if both elevators are at the right spot. And both control tabs. Okay. So it just said, look for condition. And it's like, you didn't say look to see if they're in the same position. Okay. So that is one thing that gets addressed. Now, what about the elevator check that the crew did at 80 knots, you might ask? The crew uses an elevator position indicator, or EPI gauge, for this check. And it's about one inch in diameter. It's tiny. Mm -hmm. Where is it? 
Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Come so, on, who can see that? Very tiny on the bottom of the panel, just below all the other games. And it's only on the first officer's side. Yep. Who can see that? The first Nobody. <laughs> I would have to wear glasses and I have 20-20 vision. It's so tiny. When interviewed, other Emory pilots said that they only looked at this during the check to make sure the needle moved, not necessarily that it moved its full range. Because right. it's this so small. Is why you don't have a gauge that's the size of your thumb. It's literally, like, smaller than my thumb. Now, to be fair, look at the rest of the cockpit and where would you put it? <laughs> you see that big red button right next to it? Yeah, I was going to say, there's plenty of space above those gauges to put it. You would think, but they have to run certain systems in certain places. I don't there's care. There's a reason for that. Do you see how tiny that is? Yes, and it's also, not a critical function. It's like below everything. It's not a critical function, you say? I think this flight crew would beg to differ. I get it, but it's not. Critical functions are attitude, altitude, airspeed. Those are by far and away most critical. But this affects attitude and altitude. altitude. Just saying. Because it's a control surface, but you have a control column for that. And normally, you also have a ball for that. That's to be fair, cockpits don't really look like this anymore. No. And most of this now would be indicated on a digital screen in the middle where you'd also get all your engine information. So you'd have engine information directly below that, control surface information. And typically, typically that control surface, as you move it, it gives you values. You can see going up and down. And which it tells you when you reach maxes. Which are not one inch now. Right, no. because they're digital, and everything digital can also fit onto one screen. Everything in this cockpit now fits on four different screens, and you don't have to do all of this in the cockpit. You can switch between different pages on those screens and see the information you really need. Well, that was not the case here, so right. they were relying off of a freaking tiny gauge and didn't really look at it in all that much detail and would have potentially seen that the elevator wasn't moving its full capacity. Potentially. Potentially. There's a couple of other things I didn't cover, uh, which we can cover briefly during the findings. Yeah. Are we going to take a break? Break it a break. Break it a break. break. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm back. Okay. So now for findings. So the NTSB found that. The cargo load for the accident flight was routine, and the airplane was operating within its prescribed center of gravity. So it wasn't a center of gravity problem. Right. It was not a CG problem. Was that was not a weight and balance problem. Right. That was determined pretty quickly. They found that the weather and the traffic control were not factors in this accident. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward. Moving on. I didn't have anything to do with it. They did find at some point after the previous takeoff from Reno, and before the accident takeoff roll, the bolt connecting the right elevator control tab crank fitting to the push rod migrated out of the fitting, allowing the control tab to disengage from its push rod and shift to a trailing edge down position, which in turn makes the elevator go up, which makes the airplane go up. We'll have an infographic on our website that might make that a little more yeah, easy to understand. I, I definitely like the way they showed it in the episode was kind of cool because that little tab on the end, basically, as it goes up like this, the elevator actually goes down to try to put that into the wind perfectly, that tab. So that in turn brings the elevator down, which actually brings the nose down. So with the n pulling the tab down it causes the elevator to go up which then makes the plane pitch up because it's pushing down on the tail so it's an inverse yeah it makes sense because if you think about it if you're going this way so and the whole point of this system is because it wasn't hydraulically driven this was driven right. by cables and in order to drive these things by cables it needs not to have an extreme amount of force which you if need you, were... you need to not be controlling the entire elevator right if you were controlling the entire elevator you'd have to put thousands of pounds of force on that control column and that's not possible so to only have to deal with the the control tab instead of the actual Elevator itself, that's a lot better for the pilots. Yeah, a lot of planes nowadays just work on hydraulics. Yes, but in smaller airplanes, they still use, in theory, a lot of them. Not all of them, but 
lot of smaller airplanes use this control tab form of control instead. Also, I have this picture in my head of someone standing in this hangar and finding a pin and going, shit. Yeah. <laughs> what did uh... this go to? <laughs> Trash can. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, spare parts. Yeah. Uh, oh, God. Fun fact. If, if you have a spare part after taking something apart, you did something <laughs> wrong. It's like Particularly a, an airplane. Yeah. yeah. Small rant. When they, so DU moved. I don't know if you know that, but DU moved at one point ages and ages ago. And they have a church, very famous church, where DU is. Yes. And it used to be at the old place. It was the only building they actually wanted to move. So they took it apart brick by brick, moved the whole thing. When they got done, one brick left. Oh God! <laughs> they never figured out. They never figured out where it went. That's one of those things. You're like, <laughs> hopefully that wasn't a structure carrying yeah. brick. Because like, uh, put it in the trash can. <laughs> <laughs> they found that as a result of the right elevator control tab's extreme trailing edge down deflection, the accident airplane's elevator surface were driven to command an extreme airplane nose up pitch attitude. Despite the large nose down forces, the pilots applied to the control columns the pilots were unable to overcome the effects of the restricted right elevator control tab they found that the bolt attaching the accident airplane's right elevator control tab crank fitting to the push rod was improperly secured and inspected either during the most recent de-inspection or subsequent maintenance however the board wasn't able to determine when this improper securement and inspection occurred so that's kind of important because they talk about it, and in the episode they talked about it pretty matter-of-factly when they determined it was, but the reality is, is they don't actually know which one of the two maintenance facilities might have done it because they were both pointing fingers at each other. Yeah, they're going, they did it. No, they did no, it. No, they did it. Because no one wants to take the fault because well, and, that's a big, nice, fancy lawsuit. Right. Well, and in general, most of the maintenance records around that part were legal and correct, but they don't have to say specifically that the castellated nut was installed with a cotter pin. Because there's so many of them on airplanes. And the manual didn't say you had to. Right. So, there you go. They found that the DC-8 operator's procedures and training should more clearly emphasize the DC-8 flight crew members need to verify symmetry between the right and left side elevators, control tabs, and geared tabs during the pre-flight inspections. Just make sure that they're actually the same. And one's not down. <laughs> yeah. Or you, up. You, you got a problem. Right. They found that DC-8 operators, including Emery, do not use the elevator position indicator, or EPI, to confirm elevator movement indications above and below the neutral range during the 80-knot elevator check, and thus do not take full advantage of the EPI's capabilities to provide pilots with an indication of an abnormal elevator condition. Okay, but the the thing is like the size of your thumb. Yes. Like, underneath all the other gauges. Yes. You'd have to, like, get up right close to it to make sure that the yes. elevator is moving correctly. Yes, and I could argue that they should install one at the flight engineer's position. Oh, uh, yeah. He's able yeah, to that's true. Since, wait a minute. Yeah, wait a minute. Since he's far more able to monitor things than... Like, that's his entire job? Question mark? Right. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't have flight engineers anymore, but... I mean, this is a we'll, rather moot point now. We'll but... get into that in a second. Okay. <laughs> we'll get into that. Because there's a lot more points in here that between this and the recommendations, pretty useless. That's okay. They found that the elevator position indicator needs to be periodically calibrated to ensure that it provides the most accurate information possible to the pilots. It was never calibrated. Also another thing that's really not necessary anymore. But that's okay. They found that the elevator position indicator gauge should be readily visible to both pilots. Okay, see? There it is. Boom. Or at least the flight engineer. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> they found that the circumstances of the Emory Flight 17 accident show that the current DC-8 design does not preclude a catastrophic result from a disconnection or failure of the existing control tab crank fitting to push rod attachment. It failed. It proved to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> They found that there may be airplanes that were certificated to Civil Aviation Regulations 4B standards other than the DC-8 on which the disconnection of a critical flight control could have catastrophic results. It's kind of a no-duh thing. It's like, yeah, you disconnect something, probably not going to work. Yeah, most likely. They found that the replacement of the DC-8 aluminum elevator geared tab crank arms on DC-8 airplanes with stainless steel elevator geared 
tab crank arms would likely eliminate the possibility of a jam resulting from fractured gear tab crank arms. Oh, that's a lot to talk about. Basically, this arm broke in the process, which is what caused it to jam, which is part of the problem because it was too easy to break. Aluminum's soft. Yeah. They wanted stainless steel so it didn't break. It broke at the other end, to be clear. Mm. It broke at the other end deep in the horizontal stabilizer at that end, and when it broke, then it jammed. They showed a brief demonstration of that in the episode. By the way, I always put the episode's names and things in the research portion of the website. Yeah. So if you ever want to watch it. There's streaming services. I don't know about other parts of the world, because we've had patrons be like, where do you watch that? And I'm like, you don't have it. Sorry. I don't know where you get it. (laughs) (laughs) Here's where it's from, but I don't know how you can watch it. I don't know how you watch it. Sorry. We're not sponsored, but we have a Smithsonian Channel subscription on Amazon Prime. That's how we get all our stuff. They found that the DC-8 elevator rigging procedure should be fully addressed in a separate work card that specifically lists required inspection items, including verifying the security of elevator control tab attachments after the rigging is completed. Yeah. This seems important, and to me, to be honest, I mean, yes, normally wouldn't write about a castellated nut being installed with a cotter pin and that all being secured. I get that. But when it comes to control surfaces, literally the most important thing on an airplane, aside from the engine, pretty kind of important. important. Make sure you reinstall pin. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you pick it up, everything's put back together, the plane's ready to go, and you have this tiny pin, you're like, aw, man. Uh, you're so- Wait. <laughs> you're so much more liberal with your swearing, now you're editing. <laughs> They found that all DC-8 work cards related to critical flight control should identify required inspection items as discrete tasks with individual inspection sign-off requirements. So have so- having someone sign off on your work. Mm-hmm. Which is, you should do that anyway. Yes. They found that all air carrier operators should provide maintenance personnel with more detailed information regarding the steps or actions that are necessary to satisfactorily accomplish a maintenance task. Just you know, be trained on it before you do it. Uh, yeah, please don't have it be the first don't, time you do it be on an airplane that has to leave. Don't do anything in the manual. Don't do anything outside of the manual that you don't know how to do. To just don't do anything outside of the manual. Yeah. Like, I can I, I can see someone. It's like putting together Ikea furniture. Yeah. It's... <laughs> he's on top of the, the thing trying to replace the damper. He's looking at the picture. He's trying to figure out where everything goes. That shouldn't be how that's done. Well, it's like- basically how they depicted it in the air disasters mm-hmm. episode. And then the investigator's like, well, that seems kind of hard, doesn't it? And he's like, I mean, yeah. And he's like, would you ever just disconnect this assembly over here to make it easier? And the mechanic's like, well, we're not supposed to. <laughs> and he's like, but did you? And he's like, we're not supposed to. <laughs> that's not what I asked but you. you did. <laughs> I asked if you did it. He sucked right. to his guns and said, we're not supposed to. Yeah, you're assembling the Ikea furniture. You put the shelf in before you got to that instruction. And now suddenly the door doesn't fit. Okay, I feel and attacked so, right <laughs> Suddenly the door doesn't fit. So now you got to take the door off, take the shelf out. You put the door in and suddenly the shelf doesn't fit. <laughs> that's just describing ikea furniture <laughs> that's actually what happens i have an ikea desk currently that's supposed to have a cable cubby with a uh door on it and cable um, cubby door didn't work <laughs> yeah i don't want to talk about it actually moving on right. <laughs> to be fair that wasn't our fault no they gave us a bad part that was ikea's fault yeah anyway <laughs> anyways They found that the use of outdated, incomplete, or otherwise unsuitable reference materials by maintenance personnel during the installation and or assembly of airplane components can occur, and it's a potentially unsafe practice. Pretty important. They found the use of a single airplane's flight data recorder parameter correlation for all airplanes of the same type is inadequate to ensure accurate correlations for older airplanes that have been retrofitted to record additional FDR parameters. That was kind of weird. So they went on this three-page rant about the flight data recorder, starting with its 11-degree deficiency in the elevator, and then I stopped reading. I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that it wasn't calibrated to that specific airplane, 
And so it showed the 11 degrees off. And so assuming that all of them are the same, especially when you're retrofitting an FDR to an old airplane and not building it into a system as new, it's going to have problems. Yeah. Well, and the the flight data recorder is such a vital tool to any air accident investigation authority that I understand that they went on a rant because it's like half their job. I get it. If they don't have that reliably... It makes their job a million times harder. Yes, and I get that. Two more. They found that Laurel Fairchild Model F-800 flight data recorders with unaddressed or unidentified tracking switching anomalies may currently be in operation. They're just saying this was a continued problem. Yeah, that's probably not not the case anymore. Not anymore. They found that the current regulatory definition of safety-sensitive functions is too narrow for the issue of post-accident testing because it does not include cargo handlers, load planners, and ramp supervisors all of whom have a demonstrated potential to affect the safety of a flight. This one's really outside of what actually happened in the accident, and I don't necessarily feel that that one's super important. Yeah, it doesn't really pertain. It it wasn't the problem with loading the aircraft. Right. Probable cause! The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the accident was a loss of pitch control resulting from the disconnection of the right elevator control tab. The disconnection was caused by the failure to properly secure and inspect the attachment bolt. And then proceed an entire blank page. Yeah, that was literally its own page. (laughs) It was that short. That is one of the shortest ones we've had. so dumb. Why would you waste perfectly good page on that? I don't know. A lot of other reports, they ended up putting the recommendations immediately after that. So there's actually something that came up in the analysis that didn't come up in the findings. So between the D check, or the overhaul rather, and this accident, there was a B check. Mm-hmm. That they were supposed to inspect this, and they just didn't take the cover off of this assembly to look at it. Look, it's there! We're not going to take off the Seriously? cover. Seriously? Yeah. Come on, people! God, I've got... Just okay. do your job right, maybe? Like, is that too hard to ask? Apparently. Yeah, I was surprised that didn't come up with the findings. Recommendation. Recommendations! The NTSB recommended to the FAA to require all DC-8 operators to train DC-8 flight crew members to look for symmetry between the right and left side elevators, control tabs, and geared tabs during pre-flight inspection, consistent with Boeing's June 2001 Flight Operations Bulletin guidance. Because the flight engineer probably looked right at this problem. was like, yep, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And then died. Yes. Again, actually died. Yes. <laughs> That's horrible. Yes. <laughs> Again, we'll get to why most of these are a moot point in a minute. They recommended requiring the development of a DC-8 80-knot elevator check procedure that will ensure that pilots are clearly made aware of whether the elevator is functioning properly before the airplane lifts off. Then require all DC-8 operators to incorporate these procedures into their training and normal operations. So finding something different than just that little tiny gauge is basically what they're getting at. They do include the procedures should contain specific guidance regarding an, an expected range of elevator position indicator, needle movement, and specific criteria for aborting a takeoff as a result of an inadequate elevator movement indication. So when that needle moves, it's supposed to go through a certain range. They should check that. And if it doesn't, don't go. Just that. They recommend requiring that all DC-8 operators to incorporate periodic elevator position indicator calibration inspections into their maintenance program to ensure that the EPI indications observed by pilots accurately represent the condition of the elevator. Because nobody trusted them. Ah, I work in calibration. I can't tell you how much that bothers me. But. Yeah. It moved. Cool. Let's go. Moot point. Yeah. (laughs) Bruh. They recommended requiring that DC-8 elevator position indicators be located and sized so that they are visible and usable for both the captain and the first officer. <laughs> da, da, na, na. What Look a concept. <laughs> they recommended requiring Boeing to redesign the DC-8 elevator control tab installations and require all DC-8 operators to then retrofit all DC-8 airplanes with these installations such that pilots are able to safely operate the airplane if the control tab becomes disconnected from the Yeah, control. there was no fail-safe. Nope. That's just... There is engineering right one there. One control for that control surface. One connection point. One way of controlling that control surface. Bad. Yeah, not great. They recommended evaluating airplanes other than the DC-8 certified with civil aviation regulations for B standards to evaluate whether disconnection or failure of critical flight control systems could have catastrophic results, and if so, require that they also be redesigned and retrofitted. So there's a thing about the B check. Yes, basically. Recommended requiring all DC-8 operators to replace all DC-8 aluminum elevator geared tab crank 
arms. Oh, this is such a mouthful every time I have blah, to read that. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> on their DC-8 airplanes with stainless steel ones. There. That's all I'm going to say because I'm not going to finish. It reads out the whole name of that thing again. Yes, that whole thing about replacing them with something that's stronger so it doesn't break. Break. And cause it to jam. They recommend requiring all DC-8 operators to create or revise DC-8 work cards to ensure they specifically include a post-rigging inspection of the elevator assembly. Including verifying the security of elevator control tab attachments. Like a pin. Yeah. And a nut. There you go. Yep. They recommend requiring all DC-8 operators to review their work cards related to critical flight controls and revise them as necessary to ensure that appropriate tasks are identified as discrete tasks with individual inspection sign-off requirements. So signing off specifically, if you touched the control surface, each thing you did. Which, that's just a good way to cover your butt. Yes. Like, I didn't do this. You want to know how I know? Look at all the stuff I did. I didn't even touch that part. Yes. They recommend requiring all all Part 121 air carrier operators to revise their task documents and or work cards to describe explicitly the process to be followed in accomplishing maintenance tasks. So if you're going to do a task, this is exactly what you do explicitly. Question. Yes. Why would you only tell that to Part 121 operators? They're most critical in this. But why not all? I agree. But they have to direct this at a specific portion of the industry. Otherwise, it's too difficult to comply. I agree. Okay. The thing is, it becomes so... If they force this on Part 121 operators into their maintenance manuals, who are going to be the most common... And compliant? Yes, and compliant. They have to be compliant. Yeah. Then it will kind of become common across the industry, because any Part 135 operators will probably do their maintenance with a company that handles those as well. So those maintenance personnel will likely be trained on it, and it kind of becomes disseminated information. Yes, it's kind of a roundabout way of saying... It's it's, a trickle-down. Yes, it's a trickle-down. Uh, I agree. I feel like there's a place where there could be a loophole such that a perfect storm happens and another mm-hmm. crash happens because of not including all operators. And that's fair. But ultimately, this also comes down to manufacturers making sure that these maintenance manuals are also proper. And if it did happen with an, a different operator, then they could say, we said this for part 121. Now we would like you to also put that in there as well. But I also feel like we could just avoid that incident. But I, it's too it's, it's too wide of a span. And also, this probably wouldn't be an issue for this specific thing anymore. But I know that's why um, we're moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so then they have a recommendation regarding the FDR. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's kind of long and complicated. But the entire thing comes down to they're really bitter about this. Yes, they want there to be a regular maintenance check on the FDR on aircraft manufactured before August 18th of 2000 that requires them to be checked that all parameters are basically calibrated on the FDR. That's it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) When you're bitter about the FDR that no one uses anymore. (laughs) Yeah, they got really bitter about the FDR thing. So why this is all a moot point? Well, within a very short period of time, Emory Worldwide went under. They died. So basically, during the time of the accident, they were claiming, well, we've been doing this for 50 years, and we have only lost this one airplane. We have the best safety record in this industry. We've proved that our maintenance facilities are amazing time and time again. So the FAA went LOL and yanked their certification. Yep. As soon as they noticed there was a problem, they were like, no more certification for you. So they had to stop flying immediately. Ah. As soon as they did. And that was a short while after this report was released. So Emory Worldwide ceased to exist, and the DC-8, within about 10 years basically cease to exist it's still out there there's still some that operate but there's no major scale or major operators of the dc-8 anymore at least definitely not in the united states Mm, yeah or pretty much anywhere else on earth there's not they're just not commonplace they don't fly for airlines anymore they're mostly private owned or small organizations things like that so captain albright lost his friends and then his job yep that's unfortunate yep he now works for JetBlue, though Oh, good for him. Mm-hmm. JetBlue is a good airline. He's captain rated on the E-190 and the E-320. All mm-hmm. right. So that was Emory Worldwide Flight 17. Flight 17. Yep. Thanks, as always, for listening. Happy Thanksgiving this week. This episode comes out the week oh, wait, of Thanksgiving. Really? Oh, wow. Yes, it does. That's right. So happy Thanksgiving. This is last and final call. Ha. That was a plain joke. Four ha, stories. Ha, ha. Last and final call for your thank God, thank goodness, oh my God moments. Yes. 
We need more. Please give us more. Please send more. We 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 like reading and reacting to your your stories. Yeah, the aviation story stuff has actually been a lot of fun, and I would like to keep doing it. So send us more stories, please. And if you have a topic that you wanted to suggest for a certain month, that would help too. I mean, let us know. Yeah, we we're open. Thanks to again to all our patrons for being patrons. Thanks to Rich. Thanks Thanks to to Rich. Rich. Remember, check out the website hardlandingspodcast.com you can see all the information from this episode which there's a lot of pictures yes and you can also find the form for the listener submission and for questions if you have any questions for us if you have any questions for us listener form listener question form also on the website things to come soon hopefully merch potentially yeah that would be good (laughs) I'll work on that. Leave me alone. <laughs> and I think that's it for right now. Again, happy Thanksgiving for to our U.S. listeners, obviously. And happy November. pre-holidays <laughs> to everyone else. Because it's getting real close to holiday season. So Happy online Black Friday shopping year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm expecting a lot of servers to crash. Okay, have a great week. Stay safe, stay healthy. Wear a mask. Wear a mask, please. God, it's getting so bad again. Please wear a mask. And we will catch you next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at HardlandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at HardlandingsPodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.